Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 2001 film Scotland, PA. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, I'm really curious to sort of hear your thoughts about this movie. This is a, a film that I had never heard of until we started watching some Shakespeare adaptations and I saw this title pop up when I was looking for, uh, for other Macbeths. So maybe let's start with what is your history with this film? Is this something you had seen before or was this your first time viewing this? Yeah, I'd seen it before. Um, I, uh, I use, actually, I used it in my uh, Shakespeare and film class, uh, uh, to talk about different, again, it was different ways of adapting Shakespeare. So I, I watched it actually not long after it first came out. What was uh, what was students' responses to this movie? That's a good question. I, I I seem to recall that people liked it. I I can't I can't remember that they loved it, but uh, I've got my teaching notes from it, and it looks like we had a good discussion. But I honestly don't remember exactly how they felt. It seems like this would be a movie that uh, I always think about this. There are movies that teach well, where it's like, oh, this this creates a, a good uh, classroom experience, a good academic experience, even if it may not be the greatest film of all time because it feels like there's so much you could potentially talk about uh, in a movie like this. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because in fact, one of the things that I did when I taught this film is um, one of my favorite James Thurber short stories is called the Macbeth murder mystery, uh, which I commend to our listeners. It's only about three or four pages. And the reason I start with that is because it's, it tells a story of a woman who's staying in a hotel, this is the 1930s, and she has picked up a paperback which she thought was a mystery. And it turns out that it's, a, it's the play Macbeth. And so she reads it with the assumption that she's reading a mystery and therefore it's obvious that the Macbeths couldn't have committed the murder because it's never the obvious one in a mystery. So she takes the play and she turns it into a different genre. So that was one of the ways I was one of the reasons I was interested in Scotland, PA, because it's a transformation of the play which shifts it into a different genre. Uh, which, in a sense, we saw earlier with Throne of Blood, which has elements of Japanese no theater. Uh, but this is kind of uh, well. I think this. I think this film is a number of different genres, but one that one genre certainly is is parody, uh, and so that means that it kind of relies on knowledge of a prior text in order to see what's being done with this particular plot. Wow, there's so much you said there that touches on questions that I wrote, and I'm trying to figure out which direction to go with first. <laughs> um, I, maybe I'll go with, with this question, which is, um, how does a film like this play to somebody who's never read or seen Macbeth? Like, does this work, or does it... Because you mentioned, you know, if you think about this as a parody, it's assuming a set of knowledge that can... Um, that it, uh, because it's going to be referring to things, things like this. Um, and there's an interesting line in the the Ebert review for this movie. Uh, he he seemed very conflicted about uh, mm. about kind of what he thought about this, but he ultimately landed on I think this might play better to somebody who doesn't know Macbeth. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, he actually starts the review by saying, "If you know Macbeth, it's funny." Um, and that's a really good question, Sam, because I thought a lot about that. And I found an interesting uh, quote from the director Bill and writer Billy Morissette. He says uh, that about two days before the film opened, he was uh, looking at it and saying to himself and said to himself, who, who besides me is this film for? He said, I didn't know who the hell the audience was. It's not smart enough for the really smart people. And it's not really wacky enough for the dumb people. 
And so then he says it's Shakespeare for the kid in the back row who's getting stoned and reading Cliff Notes. Um, and I, I think, I, I do think it's a film that probably doesn't play as well for the people who don't know kind of the inside jokes, who don't recognize that, you know, that he's taking Macbeth characters, he's taking Macbeth plot, and he's doing something different with them. At the same time, it does stand on its own as a kind of satire, which is which is his other purpose. So the film has several, as I already alluded to, it's got several different genres and several different purposes, and it's probably going to receive be received differently depending on where you're coming from. But I don't think there's any question that it works best if you know Macbeth. There's no, I don't think there's any question about that. Right. I one of the 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 smartest things that I read about this, and I want to give credit to the person who wrote this. Um, was a reviewer named uh, James uh, Berardinelli. Yeah, I like he, I, I like his stuff. By the way, he's did, somebody people should pay attention to. Did you read his thing yeah. on this? Yeah. yeah. So, so he talked about the um, the fact that the movie opens with uh, clips from the uh, the 1970s Dennis Weaver show McCloud, McCloud which yeah. both has a name that sounds like it's from mm -hmm. Macbeth. Um, but his his point is that. Uh, the difference between tragedy and comedy is a matter of context. Mm -hmm. That the scene that you're seeing from McLeod, if you were watching that show in 1973, is a sort of thrilling, supposed to be at least thrilling, kind of dramatic scene. But as seen in 2001 or 2021, there's an element of like silliness to the way it looks, uh, and 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 it's so, so and and I think and he's saying like that sort of is the lens through which to think about this movie, right? Right? Like like Mac, the story of Macbeth is this very violent, very dramatic story, but it can you can also take that same story and if you shift the context, make it something that is still very violent and still at times has elements of drama, but. Um, but you can make it a comedy uh, by shifting some of that context. Yeah, and, and what's even more interesting, Berardinelli doesn't make this point, but in the McLeod clip, the villain is Eddie Arnold, who at the time was starring on TV in the comedy Green Acres. So it's even as though McLeod itself was uh, shifting the context. Um, so when you talked about this uh, in terms of parody, because that was a... a, a... Uh, a word that came up a lot and I was struggling with, and maybe we can unpack parody because I was struggling with, is that an accurate way to think about this? Uh, is calling this a parody? I read that as almost like pejorative, like, like, like it's a way to kind of dismiss it as a Shakespeare adaptation. Uh, but you don't seem to, the way you talked about the word parody, it doesn't feel like you feel that that's necessarily pejorative. It doesn't, I don't think it has to be pejorative. I think that the, the way a parody works is that it, it imitates what it's parodying and then it incorporates um, recognizable elements from it. So it kind of takes an existing work as its model and works with those elements, not necessarily in order to make fun of that work, but to use it as a kind of a foundation for a different work that's uh, kind of a cousin. So maybe I'll, I'll give you another Shakespearean example, which people may or may not know, but I think Tom Stoppard's uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That, that's an example of a parody of Hamlet. It's not so much making fun of Hamlet as it's using Hamlet to create a different work that references Hamlet, but then kind of has its own its own agenda. So I think that's, you're right. I mean, there, there are times when parodies can be a way of mocking the original work, but there's also a way in which parodies can simply build on the, origi on the original work. 
Well, I'm glad you brought up the Tom Stoppard, uh, Rosencrantz, and Guildenstern because I actually had that in my notes. I've had that in my notes for since we did Chimes at Midnight, and I just sort of was like, oh, I'll, I'll push that one off um, because that's I'm a, I am will put my cards on the table. I am an enormous Tom Stoppard fan, mm-hmm. um, and I th- I loved that movie. And I and I was one of the questions I wanted to ask you was I think I asked you this even last episode. You know, like how far can you go in adaptation before it ceases to be an adaptation? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that movie. It's like. I mean, because that movie is not Hamlet, but it kind, but like Hamlet's yeah. happening. So, like, would you would you think about a film like that as a Shakespeare adaptation, or is that Stoppard playing with Shakespeare? But it, we're, we're we've passed the whatever the Rubicon is where we would call it <laughs> adaptation. I think that's a really interesting question, Sam. Um, I love the Rubicon image. Yeah, I mean, I, I think an adaptation has to. Um, has to have some elements of the original plot. And of course, you, you can raise that question with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as well, right? Because Hamlet and Ophelia and Claudius and a couple of others pop up every now and then. Um, and it does have the, the obviously the, the bare outlines of the Hamlet plot because otherwise Rosencrantz and Guildenstern wouldn't have ended up dead. Um, and you could also argue that is it an adaptation because it wouldn't exist without, without Hamlet. Um, but I, I don't. I think it's slightly on the other side. Uh, to be frank, I, I don't think I can really regard it as an adaptation because it really, it really takes flight. It's, it's more like it's been inspired by Hamlet. Um, but I don't think it's an adaptation of Hamlet. And I will say, if people haven't seen that movie, oh, it's yeah. great. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's really, really a fun uh, stopper. Everything Stopper does is i think it's pretty amazing but it but also speaking of somebody who where you you need to know the source material he's referring to to mm-hmm. really understand um really understand it. let's get into some of the specifics of this movie so um thinking about this as an adaptation of hamlet one of the things that that struck me as um interesting in terms of how the story is adapted is uh i mean well, obviously one of the key early scenes in in or not Hamlet Macbeth sorry uh, one of the key early scenes in Macbeth is um, is the witches right mm-hmm. when 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 he gets this prophecy in Throne of Blood we get this um, when they're in the forest and what's interesting is I felt like the 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 witches or the hippies or you know whatever they are in this uh, in this movie I couldn't tell if those are real people existing in the real world or if there's something else because they pop up in a in in sort of magical ways. Um, that what they tell him seems to be less specific than you get in Throne of Blood or Macbeth, where it and they're in Throne of Blood and Macbeth, it's sort of saying, you are going to do this. And 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 in here it's sort of it's a little bit more like we see you robbing this place, we think it's a bank, and there's sort of this allusion to the thing which ends up being the drive-through. <laughs> so that dramatically affects the way the rest of the story, the way you think about the rest of the story, because if, because this feels like at least for, for Mac, this feels like less of a story about ambition. Um, so, so actually the, the sort of lady Macbeth character gets to really drive the ambition part, which she does anyhow in, uh, in Macbeth and in Throne of Blood. But, but I feel like that switch changes the nature of how we think about Macbeth. It almost feels more accidental and even the even the murder of Duncan, it feels a little bit more accidental, even though they were headed in that direction anyhow. 
So I, I thought that was a very interesting way to shift the story. Yeah, he's been described, even even though this is the 70s, so this is a bit, a bit anachronistic, but he's been described as kind of a slacker Macbeth. Um, and and he, he certainly is, as is to a certain extent the case in Throne of Blood, he certainly is a, a relatively passive character. Um, but you're right, I think with the, with the witches uh, being less of a direct influence, although it seems odd that later on he, call, he talks to them because he says, I have to find out what's, what's going on or what's going to happen. So he does have some sense that they have some kind of occult power, but most of it really is um, driven by, by his wife, by, uh, by Pat. Um, this movie is... Uh, I guess I want I, to. I, 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 this is my way to get into the question of like, did you like this movie? Um, uh, this is the this is the I think the second lowest rated movie we've had on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is a fifty nine percent downsizing was forty seven, and there's really mixed reactions to it. So I'm sort of curious if you if you liked this movie. <laughs> Yes, I do. Um, I do like this movie, and it's a very—it's a very good question, Sam. I think that um, I think everybody, at least I think this is true. I think everybody who likes films has soft spots that are um, inexplicable. Um, in other words, I, I, I will not defend this as a great movie, but I have to say, I actually read three academic articles about the film, uh, and um, I have become convinced that the film is actually a really smart film. And there's a lot more going on than you realize until you kind of start digging into it. So actually, I've ended up, after watching it now for the third time, I've actually ended up liking it even better than I have the first two times. I don't, I don't think that it's, um, it's not as amusing or as funny as it can be, um, but I, I like it because I think it's doing a lot of really smart stuff. And when you, when you really start digging, you see that there's kind of a lot of layers as, as to what's going on in this film. So I, I think it works both at a kind of a superficial level, and then I think it actually works at a, uh, at a, at a deeper level. So, yeah, I, I do like it, and um, I have no trouble liking it despite Rotten Tomatoes because I think that um, critics and audiences probably are looking at it, in a sense, through a different lens. So it's kind of ironic that thinking about it from almost an academic or literary point of view actually makes it a better film than thinking about it from just kind of a cineplex point of view. Yeah, that's really interesting because I I also very much liked it. So I was hoping you recommended it because you liked it because I was I, I kept reading reviews where people were saying almost exactly some of the things you said that it's not as funny as it should be or it's not as it's not as whatever as it should be, which makes me think this is also kind of a victim of expectations. And I, so I went back and watched the trailer for the movie and the, the trailer does make it feel like a lighter comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, so it was, it was interesting. Uh, Cause I actually, I'm, I'm curious, what are some of the things as you read sort of more academic pieces about this, what are things that, uh, that jumped out at you or that jumped out at you, um, upon multiple viewings, and as somebody who is more familiar with Macbeth as a play than I am, well, you know, one 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 of the things that um, I appreciated was the, the the critiques of the film and the views of the film that think about how this is really a film about class struggle, uh, and it's really a film uh, at one level about the conflict between kind of a high culture view of things, which is what's happened to Shakespeare, and more of a low culture view of things, and how there's a kind of a kind of a social commentary on what it means for to be the Macbeths and to try to fulfill the American dream. 
So you know, so 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 here's one of those little grace notes in the film that the 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 um, uh, the Duncan character is named Norm. Uh, so he's normal. Uh, and he's put in the position of he kind of represents a certain class of society and he his soundtrack is classical music there's beethoven uh and i and i forget the other piece at his, at his funeral and the soundtrack for the Macbeths is largely bad company uh and a bunch of other stuff so i really i i think a lot of what's going on in this film which most critics did not pay attention to or else they didn't like it was this was the soundtrack and every every song that's picked in this film has a thematic function and it's commenting on the character that it's talking about so the obvious one is macbeth is is bad company you have um uh the the, the guitar playing song i forget which one that is now uh, malcolm uh malcolm is shooting star and even though billy morissette said oh i just picked bad company because the um the the catalog was cheap that's that's actually He's, he's being coy because every single song is picked for a particular purpose. And the one that I really love, and I, I can't believe this is a coincidence, is Beach Baby. Beach Baby was a one-hit wonder by a little group called First, Cla called, uh, First Class. The writing team is our name Shakespeare. Hmm. It's a guy named John Carter, but he was born Nicholas Shakespeare and his wife Gill. Uh, so it's John and Gil Shakespeare who wrote Beach Baby. Um, so and then and then there's other little grace notes like it was filmed in Nova Scotia, which is New Scotland. Um, <laughs> so there's it, 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 and, and then I, and I really think it stands up as a kind of um, really significant not only satire of the rise of of uh, McDonald's and all kinds of fast food, but I really think a, a genuinely serious commentary on the price of social ambition in, in, the, in, in America. And if you are, as Morissette described them, yes, if you are white trash, uh, you can try your darndest to rise above your station, but the system, whatever that is, is gonna kind of gonna, gonna beat you down. Uh, so I think the film has some really serious stuff that's being said under the guise of this kind of Shakespearean uh, uh, parody. I also love the way that Morissette references other Shakespeare plays. So she sends, uh, Pat Macbeth sends Macduff off to East Denmark Woods. And then of course, uh, her own behanding, uh, as Michael McDonough would say, her own behanding is a plot element straight out of Titus Andronicus. Um, so this is a guy who, Billy Morissette, who wants to play dumb, but man, he's really smart and he really knows a lot of what he, about what he's doing. Well, and I also love how, I mean, I don't know in 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 the play Macbeth how much we're getting indications of the age of the of the various characters. Like I don't know how how much older Duncan is than mm. than Macbeth, but this definitely plays off of not just class struggle, but but um, uh, generational struggles. I mean, yeah. you have you have um, uh, Norm Duncan as clearly a you know, World War II greatest generation, roughly aged person. You have the, um, then you have sort of the, the that next generation, the either baby boomers or, or early Gen Xers, kind of wrestling with the, um, uh, wrestling with their place in the world. And it's 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 funny to think about how this is made in two thousand one, but set in the seventies. But even that, I mean thinking of sort of the 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 struggles that exist still between those generations you know even in in 2021 is uh is is 
is pretty fascinating, uh, pretty fascinating to think about. Um, one other thing that I thought about with this movie is um, something that I said when we when we looked at at Hamlet, um, which is I said that that was such a such a uh, year two thousand movie. This also feels like it is, although it's set in the mid seventies. This is such a late nineties around the year two thousand made movie. Um, and I'll, I'll point to a couple things. I mean, this feels like uh, a movie that is clearly clearly exists in a post Tarantino nineties. Like it's like let's do this thing, but we're also going to really punctuate it with some. Uh, with some very violent scenes, it's like comedy and violence together, which yeah. felt like a, like a very post Tarantino uh, '90s thing. Um, it felt, felt like there were so many movies that were going for that. So this is sort of the the Shakespeare version of it. Like, what would what would Macbeth look like if you if you shot it through that uh, if you shot it through that lens? Um, it also reminded me of. Um, uh, well, it doesn't. It doesn't remind me of this movie at all. But it's interesting that we watched another movie from two thousand one, which is a uh, a very loose adaptation, which is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is based <laughs> on the Odyssey. But it's like, and it's also set in a different period in American history. And they're they play kind of fast and loose with like with the adaptation part of it. I mean, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou does a lot more fast and loose with the Odyssey. But but it made me realize, oh, those these came out in the same year. Kind of people with this thing in mind of like a, a comedy based on this. <clears throat> much older text, um, at least loosely. And both of them have the title card, um, which is, you know, just says like based on the works of Shakespeare, based on Homer. Um, so it, it made me think of those. And then a third movie that I thought of, uh, which is a movie that I saw in the theaters and haven't seen since. So I apologize if this is a, um, a bad, uh, a bad connection. Cause it, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen this, but it gave me the feeling of the the nineteen ninety eight movie A Simple Plan. Oh, I don't know yeah. if you remember that movie? Oh I mean, yeah, yeah, that's a good movie. Yeah. To my memory, this is like there's like a, a small plane crash and a bunch mm-hmm. of money in there, and then it's about these people who like essentially get away with it, right? Like mm-hmm. they find this, but it's it's sort of the haunting of we got away with this. Are we really going to get away with this? And that ha- and that I, I'm a sucker for those types of movies, so it, it made me think of the feeling of of watching a watching movie like that. And I'm going to connect this to the '70s now, and a reference is even made in the movie, which is what every episode of Columbo is. I'm a yes. huge I'm a huge Columbo fan, and I much more than murder mysteries. I enjoy the story of I know this person did this thing, and I'm the one who knows, and the other characters around them don't. And then you have that one or two meddling characters who just can't stop asking questions. And that's the Christopher, I mean, Christopher Walken functionally <laughs> is playing Columbo in this, yes. in this, uh, in this movie. So, uh, so I brought it all the way back around to the seventies, but, but I love, like, I loved that. And I mean, that's something that's not really an element. It's sort of an element of Macbeth, like the, they actually accomplished the thing and then what is going to be their downfall, but you don't have the, um, you don't have the Columbo figure in there in the same way. It's more internal them sort of wrestling with that. Yeah. yeah a couple of things you said, Sam, I, I love, you know, one is I think you're dead on about the nineties um, making this, these kinds of um, kind of genre mashups possible. Uh, and of course, in terms of the Shakespeare films of the nineties, you know, we, you already mentioned the, Am- the Amorita hot Hamlet. Um, I would also mention uh, Julie Tamor's, uh, Titus, uh, certainly Lorimer's Romeo and Juliet, Richard Lancrain's Richard the Third. These are all films that, even if they're a little more, if even if they're a little truer 
to the Shakespearean text in Scotland, PA, they all tell us that we can do some interesting things, both cinematically and, and textually, that maybe we might not have thought of before. The other thing you touched on, of course, is the appearance of um, uh, of uh, uh, Christopher Walken. Um, and of course, there's a couple of really neat things going on with him, right? There's parody of parody of 1970s vegetarianism uh, and uh, parody of those self-help tapes that he listens to in the car, which includes a uh, reference to the Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow uh, soliloquy by, by Macbeth. And that's one of those things where I think it stands on its own, even if you don't know the soliloquy from Macbeth, because uh, there's something kind of uh, silly going on with that particular tape because tomorrow is not today. Today is today. Tomorrow is not today. Tomorrow is tomorrow. Um, now, one, one critic took offense or, or, or objected to Walken. He said in a film where the only sane voice is Christopher Walken, you know, something is off. But that's exactly what I enjoyed about the film. In a film where Christopher Walken actually looks sane, um, although he too represents a kind of... Um, a, a kind of establishment figure, right? Because he takes over, he takes over uh, Macbeth's, you know, and uh, turns it into Macduff's, and it's a, it, it appears that nobody is going to come uh, to the to that particular restaurant anymore now that it's no longer serving uh, burgers. Um, speaking of 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 Walken in this movie, I mean, this hits Walken. This is a, even just the presence of Walken makes it a '90s movie because he is also. He also has a post Tarantino career, you know, after, after yep. Pulp Fiction, he's sort of in everything doing all these strange little roles. So this is the exact kind of movie that you would, that I would imagine Christopher Walken just showing up in and being Christopher Walken. And, and almost every review talks about him as, um, uh, at least the ones I read as sort of like kind of the person who steals the show. Like when he, when he shows up, he has mm -hmm. a kind of gravitational pull. Um, and I would say one of the things that I really appreciated and liked about this movie too is the casting yeah. because it features a lot of people, Walken being the exception, that either I didn't know them as actors or I only kind of vaguely know them as actors. It's like, oh, that person's familiar, but I did a lot of looking up to be like, what do I know this person from? It's a lot of that guy kind of actors yeah. where it's like, this person's familiar but not so much so that I have a lot of baggage with them. And then you have Walken come in who I have tons of baggage with, but he's a character from the outside anyhow. So that's mm -hmm. okay. Right. He's not, he doesn't live in Scotland, PA, right? He, he's sort of coming in, uh, coming into it. Um, my big takeaway with the, with the casting, and I'm saying I'm all, all of what I'm about to say is meant as a compliment to the casting is it also felt like, there were a group of people who sat around a room and said, who would we love to have that we couldn't get? And then let's find somebody who's really close to that. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, what I mean by that is if you look at, I have, I don't know anything about James Legro. I, I, I'm sure I've seen him in things, but I can't place him in anything. But in this movie, it's sort of like they said, what if we could have some kind of cross between a version of Mark Wahlberg and Val Kilmer. Yep, and, yep. and it's like, but we can't, we couldn't get either of them, but mm -hmm. like this guy could do that. Uh, Maura Tierney seems like she's doing a Jennifer Aniston impersonation. Like you, like you could, I could imagine versions of her or, or um, Catherine Keener from yeah. um, uh, being, being John, John Malkovich. Yeah. It's just, I, I just kept thinking about those, mm -hmm. those actresses and it's like, oh, they got somebody who's like, basically like that you know but but probably i'm sure a lot more uh a lot more gettable for a movie like this um and then uh the, the guy who plays malcolm i just felt like it was 
what if we could what if we could go back to 1980 and get like spicoli era yes. uh, sean penn and it's like they nailed it like that's that just piece of casting was perfect so i i just loved how how all those all those all those casting choices worked for me yeah there's some interesting interconnections uh of course maura tierney at this point in her career was pretty big on er uh, but she and Andy Dick uh, had been together previously on news radio. Uh, James Legro came from uh, um, Ally McBeal, uh, which I have never, I've, I've never watched the full episode of Ally McBeal, but I certainly remember when it was on. And then, of course, Billy Morissette, the writer-director, was at the time married to Maura Tierney. Uh, so that's probably one of the reasons why she, why she gets cast. It's so it's so funny you said that because this also comes out in a pocket of time where I had just finished college and I was just starting grad school, so I wasn't watching anything. So mm -hmm. honestly, if you had told me this was the first role for a lot of these people, I would have said, "Oh yeah, that sounds about right." I had no idea. I guess now that you say it, I know more Tierney from News Radio, but but it's it, like I just I it's like a there's a, a culture vacuum in the late nineties, uh, especially like television stuff where it's like, I just, I didn't have time for anything like that. So I, I'm very unfamiliar with, with people's work. So like, I've never seen an episode of ER, so I didn't know she was on ER. I knew it was um, a big deal, but I didn't, I never saw that. My wife was addicted to ER. And uh, I, I, so I'll give you another little tidbit. There's a, uh, there's another ER actress, Gloria Rubin, who was in a, in a different um, Macbeth adaptation called Macbeth in Manhattan. Uh, which is not a very good film. Uh, I, I'm not recommending it necessarily. I'm not. I haven't seen it in a long time, so I'm not sure how close an adaptation is. But anyway, it's odd that there's two actresses from ER both in Macbeth adaptations. Um, I also, I mean, I loved Christopher Walken in this, but I, I sort of had this thought of like, I wonder if they could have just got Peter Falk because, like, that would have been. I would have <laughs> loved. Uh, so Walken was 57, Falk was, was 74, but he was still making, the last Columbo movie was in, uh, or TV special movie was in 2003, so he was still playing Columbo. That would have been, I mean, it would have broken it a little bit, but I would have loved if they just had him, and you, you know, you can keep the name of McDuff, but just, you're constantly saying, but you're actually Columbo. I would have, I would have, that would, that joke would have been phenomenal plus i love i love peter falk i i i i couldn't have bought him as a vegetarian sorry oh that is true that is true <laughs> the other person that i thought of um and i, I realized i'm just going on a colombo riff here is and he would have been a slightly too young if it was five years later um would have been mark ruffalo only because oh, yeah. only because yeah. if you've ever seen the movie um zodiac yes. there are moments in that where he actually just looks like a young Columbo like so yeah. I so again I, I I don't know why I want to just turn this into an episode of Columbo but I think that I because of the 70s-ness of it all I would have I would have really loved that um in 2019 this this became uh, uh there was a musical adaptation yep. of this mm -hmm. and I, I couldn't find much about it but that feels right that feels like oh this feels ripe for why not add even another thing like that to it yeah, I got the musical got a really good review. Um, I don't know to what degree it's uh, it's run was shut down by COVID because it opened in late 2019. Um, but yeah, and, and the musical, it's funny because the musical evidently is sort of based on the film in the same way that the film is sort of based on, on Macbeth. They said it's not slavishly uh, uh, following, the, following the film. I actually mentioned it to one of our colleagues, uh, Meg Zauner, to suggest that maybe she might want to look into that as a Bethel production sometime. <laughs> Um, do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie? Well, I, yeah, I, I guess I just wanted to go back to the, to a kind of an earlier idea and, and, uh, cause I said earlier that the film is kind of, uh, features multiple genres. 
And I kind of wanted to play that out a little bit because I think it's worth talking about and making connections to some other films that you and I have either talked about or or the people might want to check out. First of all, it's sometimes we've already talked about it quite a bit as as a parody, um, but I think we should talk about it. It's a little bit of a of a black comedy, um, and that kind of locates it again in the '90s because. Um, if you were to tell, ask me what's another great black comedy from the 90s, and you've already alluded to this, I would say, well, Fargo, uh, the Coen Brothers Fargo. So I think that is is part of the comedy. And, and, and the humor there is the idea that you, you're either taking the tragedy of Macbeth, which is about, you know, huge political ambition, uh, uh, regicide, all kinds of, you know, the, the, the kind of stuff that happens on a big scale in the tragedy, and you're kind of shrinking it down to the level of, well, we're going to kill this guy and take over a hamburger stand. Um, or you can see it kind of working the other way. You're taking, you know, well, this, this plan to take over a hamburger stand, it's actually at the same level as killing a king and, and taking over a kingdom. So that's kind of how it, it kind of works both ways. Um, we've also talked about it as kind of a 70s retrospective, kind of a recreation of the 70s. So like uh, Linklater's film, Dazed and Confused, or you know, for a TV reference, something like uh, That 70s Show. Um, so it's also, as we've all been talking quite a bit, it's a detective drama and it kind of sets it up that way with the McLeod clips. Uh, and then the other thing I want to say, I touched on this earlier, but I think it's also a satire. Um, it's a satire, not only of ambition, but it's a satire of kind of the McDonaldization of, of America or even of the globe. Because, you know, when this is set, nobody really quite knows what things like McDonald's are going to do to the cultural landscape. So I, I would put it in, uh, in a category of satire with a, a film like uh, I Heart Huckabee's or thank you for smoking, you know, which, you know, the, which take on various kinds of um, uh, industries and what they've done to kind of the, uh, the, the culture. So that's, that kind of adds again to the idea that I think it's a really smart film because, because it's so easy just to take it at its face value. But then when you really start to dig into it, you see a lot of stuff that's actually kind of uh, that's, that's going on. One other thing I want to mention is there's a little, another, what I keep calling these grace notes. Uh, when Christopher Walken is talking in the bedroom to the, to the gay son, and of course that's a whole other element there dealing with gay, gay subculture in the 70s, and he picks up the marambas and he says, I, I'm a dancer. Well, Christopher Walken was a dancer, or is, is a dancer. That's actually Walken channeling his own, his own uh, background. The other thing I love, and this is also typical of this sort of film, is it turns out that, that Ed, who is um, impossibly stupid, uh, it turns out he's not as dumb as as Macbeth thinks, right? Because there's no bullets in the gun, uh, and Ed sets Macbeth up for that at, at, at the end. And I just love that little touch because that's something else that happens in movies like this, where it turns out that the dumb character is not as dumb as you think, and sometimes the smart character isn't as smart as he or she uh, thinks. And then the final thing I'll say is um, I really, really liked the chemistry between the Macbeths, between James Legro and, and Maura Tierney. I think that worked really, really well. And, um, you know, to make them a young couple, you know, genuinely in love and genuinely attracted to each other and generally kind of, even though she eggs them on, they are working as a team. And so the shift away from her as driving things to when he starts driving things, I think that that just works really effectively.
Yeah, I, I loved the 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 way that they lightly seed the idea that his his uh, gun won't have bullets in it when because I think there's just an offhanded comment about how they pass the one bullet between between each other, which is also like a Barney Fife reference yes, from the yes. from the '60s. So so I love that. The other joke that I love is they constantly refer to um, to Norm Duncan's past. Uh, with donuts and how he was successful yes. with that, and yes. it's, um, and 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 how like it was sort of his big challenge in life to prove he could do more than donuts. And they <laughs> and they the kids talk about how they have all this money because of the donut money that when he sold his donut company. So you know that there is this like other kingdom in his past of Dunkin's Donuts, which is very funny. Um, without without sort of going right at that, I I really really love that. Um, Speaking of of uh, Fargo, because that was another movie that I thought of uh, with this. Um, are you aware of the uh, the Joel Cohn Macbeth that's coming? Yeah, I knew it was coming. Yes. So yeah. so we we do have another another Macbeth uh, coming with Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, Brandon Gleason. So um, I'm very very excited. So that's supposed to come out this year, I think, in 2021. Yeah. Although all movie releases are kind of still. A little unclear. I'm sort of sorry that we never got Brannis Macbeth, um, but it got it got um, sidelined because his uh, Love's Labor's Lost did so poorly, and then he just kind of couldn't get couldn't get funding for Macbeth. He was going to set it sometime in the future. I've heard it referred to as a futuristic Macbeth, but I don't know hmm. exactly what that means. Um. So, anything else before we move on to next week? Um. Yeah, just one more shot that I love because I already alluded to the song Beach Baby. Um, and the shot where you see uh, Pat Macbeth in the swimming pool, and you think, oh, oh, wow, they got a swimming pool, right? And then the camera pans back, and it's just, it's, 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 again, it's this classic common and the upwardly mobile white trash. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And suburbia, right? It's well, a, yeah. It's a satirical comment on suburbia. And it points to sort of what you were saying about like, is the the scope of this movie right? Is it is it sort of grand geopolitical kingdoms or is it this hamburger restaurant? And so you you get the like, it's like a you get the shifting view of stakes where where at first you're like, wow, this maybe was bigger than I thought, and then it's like, well, actually, I could probably go buy a pool like that, you know? Like it's uh, that's I, yeah, you're right. That is a that is, is is really really fantastic. So what do you have for us for next week? Well, you know, um, I, I think I want to keep, I want to revisit the 70s themselves. Um, and a couple weeks ago, the great character actor Ned Beatty died. Uh, and I was reading his obituary in the, in the Times and was reminded that one of his kind of early roles was as a uh, studio executive in, in the film Network. And so I, I wanted to go back and, and watch Network. I haven't seen Network, I don't think. Now, I may have watched it once since it came out. I certainly saw it when it came out in, I think it's 76, uh, maybe 75. I'm not remembering well. But anyway, I want to wa watch Network because I want to see, I think it would be interesting to really talk about ways in which Network was prophetic uh, and ways in which kind of culture has fulfilled what Network foresaw and maybe ways in which we've surpassed it. Um, and it also has an Academy Award winning performance by Peter Finch that was awarded posthumously. And it features William Holden, who, whom we last saw in Sunset Boulevard. Uh, I love the movie Network. I have actually, I have a, I don't know if it's interesting, but I have a, a good story about the first time I saw it, which I will share next week. Um, and I think we talked, we brought up Network when we talked about Ace in the Hole. So this will yeah, be yeah, connect, uh, connect back to that. Network is a 
fantastic movie. If you haven't seen it, uh, you should watch it in preparation for our conversation next week. I was blown away when I saw it the first time. So, mm-hmm. um, so I'm very excited for that. Barrett, thank you so much for um, for doing this run of Shakespeare movies uh, and and I and for ending it on Scotland, PA. I was I was not sure what we were going to get into. I will also say it, it felt like a movie that could have been made. If you there was a pretty what a thirty year range. If you had told me it came out in nineteen ninety, if you told me it came out in two thousand, I would have felt like yeah, that feels I could I could have believed that. Especially probably ninety five to two thousand, anywhere in that in that range. Um, I really really uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed especially watching Throne of Blood and Scotland, PA back to back. Were mm-hmm. were kind of interesting to think about. Um, I mean this as a compliment. It makes me want to go back and reread Macbeth. It's been a long time since I've actually <laughs> read the text, so I kind of want to go back and do that. Um, that is all the time that we have for this week. We will be back next week to talk about Network in the Video Store. Mm-hmm.